Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Welcome to LawPod, the podcast of the Law School at Queen's University Belfast. I am Phil Scraton, and in today's podcast, we will be hearing about the ESRC-funded research project, Coping with COVID in Prison, the Impact of the Prisoner Lockdown. It was a product of a partnership between Queen's University Belfast researchers and the organisation User Voice. I'm joined by two of the research team, Professor Shad Maruna and Dr Gillian McNall. Welcome to you both. But before we start our discussion, I want to quote from the foreword to your report, written by Mark Johnson, the founder of User Voice. He states, While this report is a series of harrowing narratives supported by statistics, it also presents the stories and voices of those who were subjected to the extreme COVID regime. The people who have done time in a prison within a prison. For some, No matter what they were sentenced for, it has been a death sentence. No one could hear their voices then, but now you can. Or you could hear instead the trumpets of the policymakers who are keen to present their COVID strategy as a great success. Chad, welcome. I would like you to talk about how the project came about, your involvement with User Voice, and the importance of that organization in enabling prisoners' accounts to reach beyond the prison. In the report, you talk about prisoners themselves as the primary researchers. Yeah, absolutely. You know, User Voice is a pioneering organization of what now might be thought of as the kind of lived experience or credible messengers. That is, User Voice was founded. You've already quoted the founder, Mark Johnson, who himself is a prison-experienced individual, justice-experienced former prisoner. Mark had the vision that he and those like him with that lived experience have some an important voice that hadn't been heard in the justice system and founded user voice on that principle that he wanted to get uh, the voices of prisoners and former prisoners into the dialogue around what to do about justice in this society. I've been privileged to be on the board of user voice for for a decade now and and have worked closely with the organization on on a number of projects, but I'd never collaborated, uh, really, until the, the pandemic hit. Around uh, 2020, was facing, like everyone, the, the realization of, of being a non-essential worker, of, of finding myself at home, and uh, some of the, the, the pleasures of that, but also a sense of helplessness of, of being outside of the, the conversation of what was happening in society, which was, of course, nearly unprecedented, what, what we were seeing a- around us. And 
During this time, uh, me and my, my my colleagues like Jillian, but certainly the user voice organization were, were acutely aware that one aspect of society that wasn't being discussed was what was happening in the prisons during this time of what we called lockdown. And of course, we were all very concerned about our own sense of, of freedom and movement and, and, and our own public health concerns uh, during the, this raging pandemic. But but. Um, we, we were concerned that those who, who are truly locked down, as Mark said, within prisons during this, this period, were, were being lost. And, and that was a grave concern. So, so we, we came up with this proposal as a way of empowering those inside prison to tell their own story of, of, of what was happening during this, this unprecedented time. Yes. I mean, one of the things that some of the listeners won't be aware of is that Prisoners, as a matter of course, often spend up to two-thirds of their daily life locked down. So they treasure that one-third when they uh, are able to associate. You have a quote from Jonathan Simon in the, uh, in the report. Could you uh, give us a flavor of that? Sure, yeah. Jonathan Simon was writing about a decade ago in an article published in 2013 where he does a sort of history of the prison, and he centers in this history uh, the role of disease. Uh, he says, disease has a distinctive power to strip away the general invisibility of life that takes place behind the walls of prison and narrow the gulf that normally separates the fate of prisoners from the imagination of the free. These moments have been particularly consequential because of the potential to motivate legal elites to see the existing penal regime anew and actively reimagine the prison. So this was written a, a, a decade ago, and it seemed very prescient in the, in the sense that, that here we were again facing a very serious disease that, that, that was spreading throughout society. Uh, and, and in particular, the, the, the prisoners were, were at risk well beyond the rest of us in society. So, so in February 2020, half of the reported Wuhan cases of COVID-19 were among those in penal institutions. One of the first big outbreaks outside of Wuhan was thought to be spread by a, a trip of a, a prison personnel to a different prison 400 miles away. Within eight months of the beginning of the COVID pandemic, the number of people in prison who died of, of COVID or died with, with COVID far exceeded the number of people who have been executed by, by capital punishment in the United States, suggesting, as Mark said in his quote, that there, this was a new death penalty and far more deadly than, than traditional death penalty. In the end, and it's, it's, it's impossible to tally these things, but there's been something like over 4,000 people in prison died during the pandemic period. And of course, it, it, it's still COVID is still very much with us and in, in, inside institutions. So prisons are always, by their nature, dangerous places uh, for, for public health issues. And this goes from uh, HIV, AIDS, to hepatitis, to tuberculosis, and, and well beyond COVID. But, but COVID and prisons were a, a, a kind of perfect storm combination and yet, uh, with the only voices we were hearing uh, were, were those from prison staff who, who were remarkably saying in, in the media and, and elsewhere, and politicians as well, uh, backing this up, that, that the pandemic period in prisons was a silver lining of, of the pandemic 
how calm prisons had become during this time. And no one knows this better than, than you, Phil. Prisons before the pandemic were in a terrible state. So the levels of, of self-harm, the levels of suicide, the levels of violence inside prisons in England and Wales were at record levels in 2019. So when the pandemic hit, became an opportunity for the prison service to, to lock down prisoners. You mentioned uh, being locked down uh, two-thirds of the day. When we did our, our study, we found that over 85% of, of prisoners were locked down 23 hours per day during the, the COVID period. <laughs> As Jonathan Simon says, it was a definitely a, tr a transformational moment in, in prisons, uh, but it wasn't the transformation that we might have predicted. Other countries used the opportunity of, of COVID to, to uh, release huge numbers of, of prisoners uh, to try to uh, reduce overcrowding in, in the prison and, and save lives. In the UK, uh, certainly in England and Wales, the primary strategy was to lock down. And so we wanted to know what the outcomes of, of, of this kind of uh, draconian approach were. Thanks very much for, for that overview, Shad. Really appreciate it. Gillian, you're an experienced, not only prison researcher, but you have worked uh, and managed with the Samaritans. Um, you have seen firsthand pre-pandemic, the full stress that prisoners are under on a daily basis, particularly in your more recent work in women in prison. Uh, and I know that you are dedicated to, uh, in that work, to ensuring that prisoners' accounts are heard, uh, that they should inform prison reform, yet they're constantly uh, and consistently frustrated. Could you talk a bit about that and how you, when you came into this project, you could see that here there was a real imperative that Shad has just mentioned uh, about having those voices heard? Yeah, absolutely. As you mentioned, I was with Samaritan's Prison Support for 15 years and I've been going into prisons now for almost two decades. And during that time with Samaritan's, I heard firsthand the traumatic experiences of prison. And that's what led me to go into research to try and elevate those voices that I was hearing yeah. and um, try and overcome official narratives of what is happening inside prisons. At the same time, um, that then led into my work with women prisoners in Hyde Bank. And I remember reporting back the findings at a big event in the in the prison on um, women's experiences in Hyde Bank Wood. And one of the women at the end, whenever it was Q&A time, said to me, you just think we're all per we women. Mm. And it really made me think about my position in research. Yeah. And yes, contextualizing the structural violence of prison in women's lives, but um, I really thought I wanted to go a direction where I was giving agency to the participants and working more in collaboration with them. And so whenever this opportunity with User Voice came along, I really jumped at it for two reasons. First of all, the fact that it was a method of co-production. Yeah. And so the User Voice staff who all have lived experience of criminal justice helped us design this project 
and um, the prisoners were peer researchers. So that was something that really located their voices at the center of what we were doing. And the second driver, I guess, was exactly as Shad said. There was this official narrative coming out of the prison service that prisons were becoming safer during the COVID-19 pandemic because of the lockdown. And we were just shaking our heads in disbelief, thinking, what about the prisoners? What is happening to them during this lockdown? And so this project offered the perfect opportunity to find out. I think one of the things that is striking reading your work is the departure from the more usual prison research methods. Uh, We're all used to going into prison and even with difficult negotiations with the prison service, at least being able to talk to prisoners directly. Uh, There is a departure here from more usual research methods and also the challenges that arise carrying out in-depth research to hear the voices of prisoners during a period of sustained COVID lockdown. You know, nobody had experienced this before, um, prisons during a pandemic. And uh, how, how did you methodologically deal with that? Yeah, yeah, it was it was both um, one of the the uh, um, challenges, but also one of the the, the advantages uh, that that we were in such unprecedented times. The methodology we utilized is sometimes called PAR or, or participatory action research, and, and and the idea with 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 that is rather than having the kind of traditional roles of, of researchers and researched uh, that it says you you empower those who are the, the subjects of research to, to be the, the authors at, at some level. And, and of course, this is easier to say than, than to do. It, it, you know, a lot of it is done poorly and, and, and it can be a, a real challenge. But with the pandemic, as you mentioned, the idea of traditional research just wasn't going to be viable. You know, can we bring in a team of postdocs and, and graduate students into your prison for three or four weeks to do interviews with those people on the wings? You know, uh, not not in a million years, not during the, the pandemic. Uh, the, the, at the time we were in prisons in, in 2021, the inspectorate was back inside prisons, but almost no one else w- was getting inside prisons. And that includes many in prison staff, psych- psychology teams, others who uh, would normally be beyond the wings, uh, weren't getting access uh, for legitimate reasons. The idea that, that COVID wasn't uh, emerging from within prisons, it has to come from somewhere and it w- would be coming from those on the outside. So to bring in a bunch of, of traditional researchers uh, into those institutions with, with runny noses and coughing all ar- around the wings just wasn't going to happen. So, so when we, we pr- proposed it to the prison governors and, and we had to negotiate with e- each prison to get inside, our pitch was, just give us a couple of days. We will train up uh, those who are already inside your prison to do the research and, and then we're out of here. We won't we won't bother you again uh, and, and until the uh, the data is collected, and then we will will come back and stay at at an arm's length and and pick up the, the the surveys and the interview transcripts from from those who were good enough to volunteer for it. And and this was extremely difficult, you know, made more so by the uh, circumstances. But it turns out that that prisoners are are perfectly capable 
of doing research of this type. This idea sometimes we have that our research gives voice to, to those inside. Well, as some of our participants said, we, we already have voices. We just need you to help us get those voices out. And so that's certainly what we found. You know, we, we quickly, although we were, Jillian and I, um, in the position of a trainer, lecturer, giving them very brief two-day course in, in, in peer research methods that, that focused on the ethics of, of doing peer research and, and the mechanics and, and the purposes of this research, we quickly learned that we were the students and, and not the, uh, the teachers and, and learned a great deal from, we ended up training 99 people in prison across nine different institutions uh, to deliver the, the surveys and, and do interviews and collect some personal uh, notes, uh, field work diaries, and, and the like. And, you know, they, they really did a, a tremendous job for us. We, we also in, involved people with, with prison experience in the, the analysis process. Uh, Jillian got to go back into one of the, the prisons that we, we surveyed in and bring back the raw data to talk with the, the group there, the, our peer research team. In other cases, we worked with former prisoners in the community through, through User Voices um, community councils. It's a remarkable achievement for both of you and for the team. But most of all, what struck me was the incredible achievement for the prisoners themselves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I completely agree with the uh, statement about who should know best in terms of asking the right questions, entering a dialogue and producing really excellent material. There is no question about that in my mind. And um, I know that this goes back to both of your previous uh, research. Uh, and I think that one of the things that I drew from reading the report was how prison research has now a lesson to be learned in ordinary, if there is such a thing as ordinary circumstances in prison. Of course, we have prisoners as listeners. We have pr 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 prisoners all the, all the day, every day, in normal circumstances, um, interpreting and understanding what goes on in others' lives in the prison. So why should they not be experts in their own field? I use that word experts guardedly. Yeah. And uh, I might just add something. Please, Gillian. Which is um, to talk a bit more about the organization User Voice, which some of the listeners might not have heard of. And User Voice, our partners, they basically democratize prisons. They set up prison councils across wings, across houses, which then feed back the prisoner experience up to governors and allow prisoners to make and enact change in their lives where possible. And so that was a really important aspect, I think, working with them yeah. and yeah. kind of helping them harness that agency. One thing just for clarification that we missed at the beginning, could you just give me um, an, an account of where the prisons were? We're doing this podcast in, in, in Northern Ireland, but oh, yeah. we haven't mentioned so far the, the, the prisons that you were involved. I don't mean all of them, but what, what, where were the regions? Um, well, we had 10, 11. 11 with, with nine actually yeah. finishing the research. That's yeah. Right. yeah. Yeah. Across England and Wales. Right. And I think that's all we can say, isn't it? Yeah, um, I think there's uh, one women's prison. Uh, we had two uh, 
prisons with with YOI aspects to That's them. young offenders institutions. Yeah, yeah. Although yeah. I don't no? use that word. If you no, I know. If you I know use you the don't. O word, Phil. Then that's that's down to you. Yes, you use YOI. So YOI. Yeah. So we needed to let our listeners know. Yes, every level of, of security were, were represented, and 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 we tried to get a, a regional spread as well. But again, these were. You know, a, a non-random uh, sample of, of prisons. Thanks. Yeah, I, I just wanted to be clear because people listening will will want to know the scope of it. Gillian, um, you used the phrase COVID responsivity in the um, in, in in the report, and you also discuss how prisoners were, to use your phrase, abandoned. And then comes the statement Groundhog Day. These are strong categorizations. But they seem to reflect a contrast between the slowness and meaningless of time passing in prison in usual circumstances. Mm. I don't want to use the word normal. Um, and total lockdown, the fear of contagion mm. overlaying that. What was the sense that you had of how prisoners coped? Well, like you said, in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, prisons enacted what we called COVID responsivity. Yeah. And there were really two options that could be taken globally, either decarceration of prisoners yeah. or this extreme form of lockdown that we witnessed. And in our research sites, the English and uh, Welsh estate, what was enacted was an extreme lockdown. Yeah. In tandem with that, you had what we called an abandonment of prisoners because all of the outside agencies that come into a prison to support prisoners had to retract their services. Well, yeah, of course. And what was left behind was this skeleton structure of prison staff. Mixed into that then was this fear of contagion, both between the prisoners and the prison staff. Yeah. So the staff fearing prisoners and the prisoners fearing staff. So it was a real hotbed of these dynamics. And so within that, you then had this lockdown, which saw over 85% of our participant group locked down for over 23 hours a day. And during that time, there was just this sense of Groundhog Day. You know, you asked how they coped. It was really, really difficult. They lost all of the pillars of well-being that we had in the outside world during the lockdown. They lost access to exercise, to the gym, which are really important features of getting through prison life for a lot of prisoners. They lost the everyday regime of work and education. All of these pillars of what the rehabilitative prison should yeah. be and uh, I use air quotes for rehabilitative yes. prison uh, for listeners. Um, you know, that whole purpose of prison was stripped away. Yeah. And this had implications not just for the daily regime, you know, feeding into that Groundhog Day of boredom, but it also had implications for the progression of prisoners. Couldn't move across categories. They couldn't change prisons. They couldn't be released. Essentially, prisoners were trapped in this period of uncertainty and then under this extreme stress of, um, of the, the lockdown. And, 
you know, family visits were halted. We found that whilst we in the outside world were able to maintain contact with family, not on a face-to-face basis, but through calls and through Skypes, there were limited resources in prison for this to be implemented effectively. Socialization was eradicated. Loneliness set in. Or the converse of that, people could find that they were in a tiny cell with a toilet for over 23 hours a day with another prisoner. And some of those prisoners may have been suffering from really extreme forms of mental health degradation. Well, we already know that within prisons, there's a high level of mental illness on the spectrum of what mental illness actually means, don't we, in ordinary circumstances. But that intense lockdown must have added to that. And you, you, you mentioned the, the added impact of lack of family contact and visits. Yeah, it was definitely one of the things we wanted to look at was what was happening in terms of the mental health of, of, of the population there. What, what we ended up describing it as, as, as a kind of a time bomb, uh, what we found. So, so you're, you're absolutely right, Phil, that at the <laughs> best of times, uh, uh, is somewhat of an irony there, but at, at the best of times, yeah. prisons are places of, of, of extreme mental difficulties. Uh, and and we, we can all um, put ourselves in, in that perspective and imagine what, how our well-being would be in, in those kind of, kind of circumstances. But, but the, the team decided to, to include two standardized measures of, of, of mental health that, that are used very, very widely throughout the, the UK and beyond as screening tools for, for mental, mental health problems. Uh, so so a, th- a thing called the Personal Health Questionnaire 9, PHQ-9, is a screening tool used to look at, at depression and, and all sorts of different populations. And another one called the GAD-7, Generalized Anxiety Disorder 7, that, that would look at things like post-traumatic stress disorder. It, it, it's a useful screening tool for those things. So we included those two items in the survey that, that, that we gave out, um, and, and this allowed us to, to, to make two comparisons that were really important. One, these exact same screening tools are used with the, the general population and were used throughout COVID. So in the articles you would see of, you know, COVID is making us all depressed, uh, which it did, um, they, they, it was almost always the PHQ-9 that they were talking about, and, and you could see the 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 the, um, the general population our, our average score on this nine item scale went from something like three before the pandemic went between five and eight uh, during the pandemic so so in the general public we could see this uh, happening in inside prisons too they've used the PHQ nine and the GAD seven and very fortunately for us there was a study done just during 2019 so so in the year before. The, the pandemic, they found something like 20% of people in prison in 2019 were scoring in the extreme scale, part of the scale, in, in terms of, of, of both depression and anxiety. In the general population, it would be like one out of 50. Uh, in prisons, it was one out of five at the extreme level of, of, of depression and anxiety. So, so you can see that um, we then use the same scales during COVID when, when people were essentially experiencing 
uh, long-term solitary confinement. Confinement is, is defined by the United Nations and the, the Mandela uh, uh, Code, uh, as you know, as, as 22 hours or more locked down without a meaningful contact. And, and these certainly 85% of our interviewees qualified for that at the time that, that we surveyed them. We found GAD scores and PHQ scores over double what was found in 2019. So, so 50% of our sample were in the severe depression and the severe anxiety category. So, so this is what we meant by a mental health time bomb happening in, inside. Now, now, how this will manifest is, is, is a different question, uh, but those kind of levels of, of mental illness and mental unwellness are truly staggering and, and, and dangerous on lots of levels. I might follow up on that um, because as we talked about earlier, there was this myth of violence reduction that was being um, sort of bandied around by the the prison service and and prison staff. But actually, as an outcome of these increased mental health issues, what we saw was a kind of internalization Mm. of violence. Mm -hmm. You know, we spoke to participants who talked about standing in a corner and banging their head against the wall again and again and again. They were so frustrated. Yes. We heard about people ripping their cells apart. Yes. Pulling out sinks, flooding landings. We heard about dirty protests going on. People just couldn't cope with these intense periods of solitary confinement. And so violence was materializing in these different kinds of ways. I think this is a really important point because out in the general public, when people hear about violence within prisons, Mm -hmm. as you've just described, either interpersonal violence, violence Mm -hmm. to the self, or destruction of property, they assume that prisoners are endemically violent. Mm -hmm. But what they fail to understand is what the pressures of being in prison, in ordinary circumstances, Mm -hmm. if I may use that phrase, Um, mean to an individual. In these extreme circumstances, would you say that these are rational responses to an irrational and incredibly damaging situation? Yeah, you said that the general public has a sense that that prisoners are are inherently violent. You know, I would would flip that on its head and say that prisons are inherently uh, violent environments, that, that if you took a random sample of, of the general population and subjected that sample to those conditions, certainly the conditions we saw in, in 2021, the level of violence, and, and, and Jillian is right, you know, some of this is how do we define what is violence and, and you know, is violence only an assault against a, a prison officer or, 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 or how do we mean when we say levels of violence inside? But, but yes, I would say that, that those environments are, are, are producing of that. Yeah. yeah. And it's really important to note, too, that we've kind of left COVID behind to Mm. a a certain extent, but prisoners are still experiencing this lockdown. Oh, yes. You know, it's as if this regime has been tested and implemented, Mm. and now in the face of reduced resources in prisons, uh, in staff reduced rates, this is what prisoners are still being, um, this is what prisoners are still being, being subjected, subjected to. to. Yeah. No, and I can see that. And it's very clear in the report. It's very clear in their accounts, just exactly how that, how, how that pans out. 
you one of the things that you use is a is a, an academic phrase, I guess, which is about how neutralization techniques are actually used then to explain what the exceptional was and then normalize it, if you know what I mean. So you run through them, you say, oh, well, everybody knows this already, but that was then, the lockdown is now over, prisons are always unpleasant places, whether or not you have pandemic. Doesn't everybody suffer outside in the real world, in the, the real world, they would put it, mm. during a pandemic? And wasn't this the only option? I mean, yeah. those five questions are really crucial questions because they're questions that the general public will always ask. Yeah. So how do you respond to that? I mean, you've explained a lot already, in fact, but how would you nutshell that? Yeah, I mean, we, we got those questions. We, we were fortunate enough, uh, as, as this was a participatory action research project, the action part involved us feeding back the findings uh, within each uh, institution as soon as we were, were done, not the, the moment we were done, but, but as quickly as we could, you know, very soon after collecting the data, we were feeding it back to, to the, the individual establishments, and we were also feeding it back to, to the, the Gold Command group and the, uh, the, the prison service. And these kind of responses uh, were the type of things we were hearing, all, all yeah. perfectly rational, but to our, our frustration that we were, we were finding things that were, were you know, keeping us up at night as, as, as researchers. Yes. We were finding things that we found uh, very striking and, and, and not always, but often uh, they would be re responded to with a kind of shrug. But yes, we, we knew this. This was part of our risk assessment. We knew that there would be uh, some, some mental health problems with this, but this was a calculated risk that, that we took on the basis of necessity and to save lives and, and these kind of things. And, and, and so in the report, we, we, we try to address each of those neutralizations. You know, of course, in, in real time, it's more difficult to do that. But since we had the, the benefit of, of sitting down to, to write the report, we thought we, we would go through all of those and, and, and try to show that, that we don't want to come across in, in, in our dissemination and, 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 and in the report itself as, you know, attacking individuals in the, in the system for the choices they, they made. Because even if we disagree with some of those choices, to attack them will immediately get that kind of defensiveness back yeah. of, of, you know, hey, I was in a very extraordinary circumstance here. I had to save lives. Uh, I had very little time and very little information, and yeah. I did the best I could. And 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 that's understandable. So we 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 try to approach it, uh, taking that for granted, saying, "Look, we know that that this wasn't a sinister plot, but but here is what has happened during the, the pandemic. This is what's happening to lives. So now, what do we do about it? How how, how can we?" Uh, make amends for this? How can we move on and so forth? And and as Jillian has said, one of the sad things, you know, although I think the the, the work has had some impact, but but it it does seem that that the political climate of, of the moment, you know, now we're 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 in a cost of living crisis. We're in we're we're in a, a variety of different crises happening at, at the moment, and and the public's attention, the, the certainly the political class's attention is miles away from 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 prisons and 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 again this will always be the kind of forgotten population during all this to to go back to the Jonathan Simon quote you know we we forget about prisons at at our own peril you know the, the spread of the the pandemic was empirically uh, attributed to the spread of penal institutions and especially uh, the big city jails and and with, with the churn of people in and out of them and so forth so so well i despair at times but but working uh, against 
those neutralizations is, is something that, that we, we are forever in this work. And, and again, you know this better than anyone, Phil, the, uh, fighting against to try to make folks realize that the issues of prisons are all of our issues. And, you know, the, the impact is, 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 is throughout society uh, and not just in this kind of forgotten group. I think that it's worth saying, too, that the choice to lock down was a political choice. Yeah. You know, initially the government mm. had promised that it would enact early release schemes in line with actions being taken globally. You know, five to six percent of the global prison population was released. Yeah. Low risk prisoners, vulnerable prisoners, elderly prisoners, you know. But in England and Wales, that initial decision was rolled back yeah. and only a couple of hundred prisoners ended yeah. up being released. Out of 80,000. Interestingly, I haven't read it myself and don't ever plan to, but Matt, Matt Hancock's book, apparently uh, his autobiography, he takes credit for, for that or, or, or some credit for being the person who, who said, uh, this will never happen on, on, under my watch, the, yeah. the, the prisoner release scheme. Uh, it, it's um, quite a, a legacy uh, for, for that individual. And he, he'll probably claim credibility for understanding prisons for his time mm. in a jungle somewhere in Australia. <laughs> I mean, I think that, that, that one of the issues that has come out of what you've been saying, Gillian, which I, I want to turn to, is you conclude the, the, the report with a, a discussion of um, the significance of listening to the experiences of prisoners. This is something that both of you do, but Gillian, you've done it in more than one role, and um, you've done it in more than one set of circumstances, both individual listening, but also collective listening. And reflecting on the range of research that you've now done, um, what does this project tell us about the importance of peer research, of hearing the voices directly as discussed by others who are going through the process of imprisonment themselves. What does it tell us about the importance of peer research? Yeah, I mean, I think peer-led research is central. It's, it's the way it, all prison research should be, I think, mm -hmm. now. It's so important that we give people in prison and criminalized people the agency to tell their own stories and to decide how those stories should be told. And I hope, as I'm sure Shad does, that this project has provided a framework to allow that to happen during one of the most difficult times that we've ever experienced um, globally. The people who participated in the project as peer researchers, we had the good fortune to then meet them, meet some of them afterwards yeah. because they were in the National Council. Okay. So they were able to then help us analyze the material. They've also been central in how we've been disseminating the findings. I don't know if you've seen the film that was produced alongside the report, yeah. but in that you see people who were in prison during that time mm -hmm. Some of them were peer researchers as well, and their voices are central to the telling of the tale. And um, that's all that we hoped for, and it's everything that it should be, I think. Yeah, I mean, it reminded me of when many years ago we were doing the research on the uprisings in Scottish prisons, and um, we were not given access to the prison and suggested that we would send in an open letter to prisoners to 
write to us uh, of their experiences, and people said that they won't write back and all the rest of it. Two weeks later, we had 63 responses from people who'd been in the heart of the uprising, some of them 3,000 words long. Yeah. And what, this, what, what your work has reminded me of is that significance, is that the voices are there, ready to be heard, yeah. but they are systemically denied. Yeah. They're just de denied in the prison because of the routine of how, if they make complaints or whatever, uh, of, of, of how that process operates, but they're also denied externally. And I think that's one of the strengths of this work. You say that you make no apology, uh, and rightly so, I believe, for focusing on the views of prisoners. Does this now, and it, you've partly answered this question, it's a question to both of you, does this now suggest a rebalancing of prison research to ensure that the view from inside is, a, is an appropriate consideration? We talk about the view from above, that which is what we learn from official documents and official research and much of the ESRC research, etc. But this we're talking here is like the view from inside. Yeah, I, I, I think it's, um, it, it really does. It certainly does for, for me going forward. I can't imagine going back uh, research-wise. But again, the limitations of what was possible during the, 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 the pandemic meant that prison research, internationally speaking here, became very, very reliant on official statistics from inside prisons and, and so forth. So, so very much top-down collected data. And, and that narrative has um, held sway. Uh, and yes, this research, I think, being a mirror opposite of what that wider narrative is of that these are the best of times in prison and so forth would suggest in itself a need for, for always uh, um, getting this kind of voice. Yeah. yeah. We're getting towards the end. But before I ask you the obvious general question of anything we haven't covered, there is one more really significant point that follows on from the discussion we've been having, and that's how you, and you've partly answered it, how you've ensured that those who participated in the research have had access to reports. I mean, as academics, your work is now published in peer-reviewed journals. However, beyond academia, what are the responsibilities of prison researchers to prisoners, ensuring that their voices are heard, but also that their voices are not misrepresented? That involves, I believe, feedback and discussion, further discussion. How how have you managed to negotiate that? As Shad said earlier, we went into, we returned to prisons where we could. I went back to one of our, of the big prisons we went into and fed back the themes that were coming out of the data that um, they have provided us with. And then it, you know, they really just talked it all through, gave me their interpretation, yeah. explained things to me that I had maybe just interpreted through my lens, you know, yeah. Yeah. not through not through theirs. And then our partners, Years of Voice, did the same thing. You know, they went back into the, the prisons and um, we had done, as Shad mentioned, these rapid response reports for each prison. So we had this big report, but we were feeding back immediately to each individual prison to to make sure that change could be implemented as rapidly wow. as possible at, at the time. At the time, wow. yeah. And so these were going not just to the the, the governor and the the the, the uh, management team, but but to our peer research team as well, so they could see uh, what what their governors are seeing from from their 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 individual institution. Yeah. No, that's yeah. an amazing level of 
of of readjusting the accountability mechanism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And so they were able to feedback on that on those individual um, findings from their individual establishment, and then all of that second the analysis of the overarching report, and then we met up with the national council. Um, going to say four or five times Mm. and they helped us further analyze the overarching themes you know what did they think of them was this did this have the primacy that we were given um and many of them had been peer researchers for us Mm. or had been in prison during the pandemic so it was just great for triangulation wasn't it yeah yeah the only other thing i would add you know, we were very aware of uh, the, the risk and potential for exploitation here. You know that uh, we were asking a lot uh, of, of these individuals, uh, and, and uh, thankfully, no one got in serious trouble from uh, their prison uh, for for try, uh, participating in in the research. Although many had hassles from staff, but they also put themselves at risk simply in talking to other prisoners uh, at, at a, from a public health perspective as well and so forth. Yeah. So so we wanted to make sure that, that they got something out of this besides the experience, besides the sense of doing something uh, that, that might make a difference, that should make a difference. The, the uh, training that we delivered was, was accredited. The 99 peer researchers had the opportunity to, to get a qualification in peer research methods through the Open College Network. Now, now not all of them were able to, it involves a lot of paperwork to, to demonstrate learning, so, so, so some short essays and so, some workbooks and so forth. And, and uh, nothing like all of the 99 got the, the, the full qualification, but they had that opportunity. And all of the 99, we wrote a letter of recommendation for them, uh, thanking them for their participation and explaining what, what they did, that, that they can use that, that letter in, in, in whatever way for their folder going forward. We did keep that in mind, that this has to be um, a mutual process. We weren't able to pay peer researchers because of the difficulties there in in, in the prison, but we did want to make sure that they were uh, gaining as much as as we were from their their participation. I, I can remember a prisoner once saying to me when I discussed the issue, of not being able to put something into the right. tuck, tuck box or whatever their their, their weekly pay, mm. he he said to me, "Participation is my payment. Truth right. is the yeah. is the end result." Mm. And I think that that mm. is a, a really significant. Um, that's the that's the significance of this work. Before we close, you know, one of the you, you've been, you've been incredibly generous with your time. You've covered this in 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 depth. But is there are there any any observations that we've missed, any issues that we've missed that you feel that you would like to emphasize as we depart? I think we've covered everything, but I would say that this story isn't over, you know? I feel that generally we're all moving on from COVID in a kind of business as usual way yeah, and not really acknowledging the trauma that has been experienced globally. Mm And no more so is this the case than in prison. It's not enough to just move past this. There has to be an acknowledgement of the hugely traumatic experience of two years of basically solitary confinement. Yes. And the impact that that has has had on people who are still in prison and on those who are exiting prison. You know? Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, and I'm as much as anyone, uh, you know, tired of COVID, tired of of thinking about COVID, and 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 so. 
you know, I would encourage folks to, to have a look at the, the report that's online, to have a look at the, the journal articles that you've mentioned, uh, Phil, but, but to read them, yeah, less as a study of, of a particular historical moment and, and more of a, a generalizable study of, of, of the prison and, and uh, life in, inside prison, certainly in, in solitary confinement on, on a mass scale, which, which is a, a natural experiment that I hope is never repeated, but, but we, we certainly need to learn from uh, go, going forward. Thank you very much. I mean, I think there are three points I would just like to, to uh, emphasize in, in, that came out of your discussion in, in conclusion. First of all, the way in which in the general public people will use phrases like it's like being in a prison mm -hmm. when they describe covid uh, that it isn't i've been in prisons you've been in prisons it's not like being in a prison every day through covid however much it was difficult for myself my family and all those around me and those people who lost loved ones we walked in the park we were able to get in the garden we were able to do all of those those issues the other issue that came out of this was the sincerity of this work as a, a prison researcher myself, I know exactly what you meant when you used the phrase, it kept us up at night. I think that people should understand that researchers who are invested in this kind of research do not do it just because it's, it ups their research profile. They do it because it is a tremendous commitment and it comes at a price. But the third issue, which came out of what you were saying, which I feel very strongly about, is that the research was done in a climate of the necessity to save lives. That phrase that you use really struck home to me early in the interview. So thank you, Shad. Thank you, Gillian, for this tremendous piece of work. I encourage everybody to read it. Whether or not they have a direct interest in prisons, we all should have a direct interest in prisons. Prisons are built, constructed, staffed in our name. Therefore, it's our responsibility to ensure that the, that the prisons themselves are questioned at every level in terms of their organization with or without COVID. This has been a, a great pleasure for me, although it's a, a, a very heavy subject, to chair this law pod. The podcast, as I said at the beginning of the law school at Queen's University, we're indebted to both Gillian and to Shad for the research and for also for the publications but also for their humanity in uh, shining a light on a corner of our society that was ignored throughout the pandemic. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. Thank you.